over the past 20 years and over our experience of using using the net uh, and using the web, we've realized on many levels that that's actually nonsense. That free speech and or the free sharing of ideas does require a certain degree of moderation. It does require a certain degree of, of, of rules and people to enforce those rules to, to enable uh, civilized discourse and genuine sharing of ideas. And so the debate has changed over the past, over the past decade or so to, to start to bring into I bring into the into the arguments more of a support for if not censorship which is traditionally something that governments do which would be here in the US of course would be completely illegal because it would be unconstitutional it'd be against the first amendment but if not censorship then certainly some form of rules of speech on a site by site or service by service basis which it turns out that if you don't have them then the quality of speech overall falls rapidly Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. What if freedom of speech was freaking terrible and authoritarianism was ultimately the answer? What if everything you thought you knew about democracy and the future of humanity might just be coming into question? What if it was? Today, we've got Ben Hammersley on the program. He's a technologist, futurist author, and the editor-at-large of the UK's Wired magazine. Ben's been everywhere when it comes to the internet and media, and he explores the effects of the internet and digital networks on worlds of business, politics, and society. And his book, 64 Things You Need to Know for Then, gives us a, a essential guide into what life in the 21st century will be. He's hosted a series on Netflix, Cybercrimes with Ben Hammersley, invented the term podcast, yes, seriously, and it's haunted him ever since. And he's called upon frequently to advise governments and large corporations on issues of media freedom and liberty. He's an adventure junkie with an incredible mustache and a lot to add. So let's get into this. Today, we're going to discuss how societal norms and social media break down without proper guidance, the future of publishing and media in an age of outrage, why internet censorship is important and the key to democracy. Yes, the key. Is democracy or authoritarianism a better model going forward? What happens? to the world when China becomes the economic powerhouse? And why Ben believes, yes, digital advertising is in fact an entirely enormous bubble of a Ponzi scheme. This one's completely controversial, super interesting, and we know that you guys are going to enjoy this. Before we jump into the episode, though, please consider supporting the Disrupt. We're fiscally sponsored by a 501c3. That means you can make tax-deductible donations if you're living in the U.S. so that you can help fund the production of this program rather than sending your money off to Uncle Sam. If you go to disruptors.fm support, you can find out more and get all the details. And if you want to support us on Patreon, disruptors.fm Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Consider supporting independent media like the Disruptors so we can avoid having advertising and bring you incredible insightful content like this, stuff that makes you, and more importantly, other people think about the bigger, more important societal issue facing all of us. And now, without further ado, I give you Ben Hammersley. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I wanted to kick this off with an unconventional place because it's a podcast and apparently you're the guy who coined the term podcast. I am. Yeah, sadly, it's a, it's a, a terrible secret of mine that follows me around everywhere I go. What is it? The, there's got to be a story there. There is. It's, and it's actually kind of a, it's, it's, um, it's somehow disappointing, I think. The, 
in about 2004, exactly 2004, February 2004, I was uh, the, the, one of the technology reporters for the Guardian newspaper. And at the same time, I was also writing a lot of books on coding. And, and I'd just written a textbook on the RSS standard, which is the, you know, the underlying data standard that podcasting runs on. And there was this whole new phenomenon of people who were creating MP3 recordings and uh, having them automatically download onto their onto their systems because of uh, because of an RSS feed, and so I wrote about this as an, in an article in the in the Guardian, and it was at a time when the uh, paper was paper centric in that all the stories you wrote appeared in the printed page first, and then were chosen for the website. And because of that, you had a very very strong deadline because it was when you had to physically run the presses. And I wrote this article, and about ten minutes to go before the presses ran, I had a phone call from my editor saying, yeah, the piece is great, but we need an extra sentence because it doesn't quite fit on the page properly and we don't have enough time to redesign the page. And so he said, like, you know, can you write me another sentence? And heavily caffeinated under extreme deadlines because you can't hold the presses back because it costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a minute for every minute you hold the presses back. I just had to come up with a sentence. And so I wrote this sort of mildly bullshit sentence, which is something like, but what do we call this new phenomenon? And then I made up some words and emailed it over to him and it you know, got slotted into the page and it fitted perfectly and, you know, and everybody was happy. And then about six months later, I had an email from the Oxford English Dictionary saying, so um, you used the word podcast in this article. Where did you get that word from? And I had to confess that I sort of made it up. And they said, yeah, we think so too, because we couldn't find an earlier citation of it. And they said, well, you know, it's going in the dictionary this year and it's also going to be word of the year. Uh, for which I got nothing. And then a few years later, I was having a meeting at Apple in London with a, a sort of a friend of a friend of mine who was working for iTunes at the time. And I'm sat in his office and he was an old music industry dude and he had all these like gold, gold records around the wall and a drum kit and an electric guitar and all this sort of stuff and, we're, and a fridge full of beer and we're sat drinking beer and talking nonsense about technology or something. And there was a knock on the door and, and somebody stuck their head through the door and said, are you, are you Ben Hammersley? And I said, yeah. And they said, yes, we have a message from the legal department. I said, oh, yeah. I said, yes, you're not getting any money. And then closed the door and walked away. And then ever since then, it's this sort of thing that I did in like 30 seconds under the, under the threat of a deadline has, has sort of followed me around. And so whenever I speak at conferences, or which I do quite a lot, or, or speak to governments or Again, which I do quite a lot. Part of the introduction that the person always makes is, and he's the man who invented the word podcast. And I'm like, this is going to follow me to the grave. Uh, Caffeine, but, creativity, and a deadline. That's a, ex- exactly, a lot of yeah. things have come that way. Well, true, but I'm not entirely sure if it's a particularly good invention to have to be your legacy. But, you know. Yeah, well, uh, we'll try to give you some other things as well. So I was listening to, I found you actually, you had a talk. It's so like six years ago and you were debating internet censorship and if things were getting out of control six years ago. And that's fascinating today. Take me mm-hmm. through that advancement, that progression, especially as someone, you're the editor-in-chief of Wired UK. You see what's happening. Where are we yeah. headed and how have things spiraled out of control? Well, it's a difficult question, isn't it? Because we, we have these sorts of balances that we have to sort of, that a society is learning to come to terms with the power of the internet. 20 or 30, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there was this idea that simply by connecting people across the globe, you would create this this digital global village with this idea that you would bring about world peace and, and 
mutual understanding and all of that sort of thing. And there's the, the sort of famous quote about, you know, only connect and uh, the devil will die and all of this sorts of, all these sorts of ideas. And that was certainly the, one of the sets of ideas that the early protagonists of the internet and the early visionaries of the web had was that you connect people together without censorship, without government interference, and people would gather together in a global community of peace and love and understanding. And so from that point of view, 20 years ago, censorship was a complete anathema, or at least, or at least, uh, uh, any form of restrictions on free speech was a complete anathema to, to this vision of, of, of truth and happiness. Uh, but over the past 20 years and over our experience of using, using the net uh, and using the web, we've realized on many levels that that's actually nonsense. That free speech and, or the free sharing of ideas does require a certain degree of moderation. It does require a certain degree of, of, of rules and people to enforce those rules to, to enable uh, civilized discourse and genuine sharing of ideas. And so the, the debate has changed over the past, over the past decade or so to, to start to bring into, I, I bring into the, into the arguments more of a support for if not censorship, which is traditionally something that governments do, which would be here in the US, of course, would be completely illegal because it would be unconstitutional it would be against the First Amendment. But if not censorship, then certainly some form of rules of speech on a site by site or service by service basis, which it turns out that if you don't have them, then the quality of speech overall falls rapidly. Whereas if you do have them and the sorts of communities online where there are strong uh, community guidelines and strong moderation, then, then um, the quality of the discourse and the quality of the arguments gets better and better. And so we're now really learning as a community and as, a, as you know, as people, right? We're learning how these sorts of networks work. And it's not surprising in many ways that 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, we were wrong because we just didn't have very much experience using uh, you know, very much experience as, a, as, as individuals. Even the most digitally advanced, even the most digitally experienced individuals uh, still aren't that experienced. You know, if, if the old Malcolm Gladwell thing, which isn't necessarily true, but if the old Malcolm Gladwell thing, if it takes you 10,000 hours to be like an expert in a particular subject, if that's true, or if that's a good ballpark figure, then if you are mindfully online for an hour and a half a day, it's still going to take you 20 years to be any good at it. And so we're just, what we're seeing now in terms of as regards censorship is just people getting to that 20 year point and realizing that some of the things we assumed were, were right and good and idyllic are wrong based on you know the uh, behavior of other people. How do we deal with that? So the, there's the whole, we should censor this. We should kick Alex Jones off Twitter. We should do these kind of things. And they seem like the right thing to do because they are in the individual circumstance, but the precedent and the power doesn't go away. Presidents don't get weaker. The position gets stronger and stronger. And the same is true with rules and whoever's in charge. What do you up think? A, well, up to, a, up to a degree, right? I mean, it's the, it's the old punching Nazis argument. Do you, do you, you know, just because you're in favor of punching Nazis doesn't, doesn't mean you're in favor of punching everybody. There is no slippy slope in punching Nazis, right? You punch a Nazi, it's not a slippy slope to punching everybody. Um, and it's the same thing, I think, with, with freedom of speech. The slippy slope argument is, isn't, which is that exactly that, that, you know, once we have the infrastructure to censor people, we'll just keep censoring people until the only people are left are me and my friend. It just isn't true. It just doesn't, it's, it's not the case. And there are, on the one hand, and, and also on the other hand, there, there are certain, there are certain types of online speech which itself closes down other types of online speech. So we see, especially from the alt-right, uh, many different debating techniques which are used, which they use very specifically to close down the possibilities of other discussions. 
you know, whether that's brigading or sea lining or, or any of the other sort of terms that we used to describe their rhetorical uh, techniques, they're not, they're not acting out of, they're not acting in good faith. And so anybody who is, is acting in bad faith in that respect doesn't get to play the game. And it's not a slippy slope because we can, because it's not a matter of disagreeing with those people. Um, it's a matter of the fact that they, it's a matter of the fact that they, they spoil the game. They, that they actually ruin the discourse. Their, their aim isn't to, isn't to win the battle of ideas by having better ideas. Their aim is to win the battle of ideas by causing the other people to give up. And, and that can't, that's a fundamentally different thing. If you were to argue with, you know, Alex Jones, on, on the basis of the veracity of their of his ideas, he would lose immediately because he's an idiot, right? I mean, his ideas are false, are completely false. They're entirely wrong. And this is not a matter of a, you know aesthetic opinion. He's just an idiot. But it's very difficult to have a good faith discussion with him about the fact that he's an idiot because of his rhetorical technique, uh, which involves a lot of screaming or the online equivalent of screaming. And so, because they're not playing in good faith, they don't get to play at all in a civilized system. Well, the same thing with Trump, but he won yeah. that game. Uh, but well, well, indeed. I mean, I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, the, that's one of the things we're seeing with media at the moment is that it's in, in that there's always been within within modern journalism, there's always been this assumption that the the players of the game, whether that's the president or prime minister or a senior politician, whoever it is, that they're not lying, right? And and so the system is set up. The system cannot deal with, and this is very much the case with Trump. The system, just journalism in general, cannot deal with the fact that literally everything he says is a lie, right? If if because it, because it's it, they're very very squeamish systemically, you know, institutionally very very squeamish from just from just saying of the 150 definitive statements he made in the State of the Union, 130 of them are provably false, right? It's because because it's just systemically really really difficult to say that, even though that thing is actually the case, and that's why modern journalism is, is has a real real problem because there is also this idea of a, of a sort of a fair play, and, and that everybody is coming into these arguments in good faith. And if you have a bad faith actor like the president or like the alt right on, on Twitter or, or whatever it is, um, the rules of the game fall apart. They do, and I want to get back to that. But how do we fix how do we fix media then? And I, I think advertising is a big one of the driving forces behind the problem. Mm. But how, how how can we deal with that? And can we regulate or rule-based something into that to avoid those types of inherent problems? Um, I don't know if you can, I mean, there are some things you can do in that you can encourage advertisers or discourage advertisers from from, from supporting, usually unconsciously supporting those sorts of outlets. Uh, and there's, a, there's an organization, for example, here in the US called Sleeping Giants that does that, that, can, that basically, if you advertise on, on Alec Jones, as an example, Sleeping Giants will uh, notice and will contact you. And thousands of people will contact that advertiser saying, hey, do you realize where your ad spend is going? And that usually gets that advertising pulled because somebody within that advertiser goes, oh, no, you're right. We don't want our brand sitting next to, we don't want our brand associated with this person or this type of speech. And so that's pulled away and um, and they lose their income. And, and so we've seen that with quite a few sort of alt-right type personalities where they just lose their income because because the infrastructure that pays for it, the advertising, the payment processes, all those sorts of people withdraw their facilities from them. And that that's a good way of doing it, but that's a good way of being active. But in terms of discourse, I think what you just need is you need to have no matter how much you, if you genuinely profess to have a system which values free speech, you have to not think of free speech as just not censoring or not moderating. You have to think about it as as protecting the playing area, right? As protecting this, protecting this free the free speech arena in the first instance. 
And so when Twitter, for example, say, well, we, we're, you know, we're in favor of the free exchange of ideas and free speech, and therefore we don't moderate, we don't proactively moderate, they're actually entirely missing the point because they're not in favor of speech in that case, because they're not protecting a place where ideas can be freely expressed and exchanged because you have these bad actors who step in and, and like break the game. Like they have to be playing by the same rule. Uh, and so that's, so it's actually like <laughs> in a weird way, censorship is the thing that prevents censorship, right? It's it, it, like moderation is the thing that is the thing that actually protects freedom of speech because you have these bad actors. So I think we could definitely agree. We want to try to take the bots and trolls out of the system, ideally via an automated way. Although it's hard to it's harder to play defense than it is to play offense. So that sure, in and of itself sure. is a big problem. But then who decides who decides what the rules are? So I, I've heard a lot of people advocating for the the idyllic white and shining armor type dictator. Zuckerberg <laughs> should take this guy off, or they should take that person off. But when one person has that power, what happens when you don't like the next guy who gets his job? Uh, then you don't use that system, right? I mean, it's not mandatory to use Twitter or Facebook, and at some point they're going to have to sit. At some point they have to. Stay take a stance because otherwise you end up being like those sorts of Twitter-esque copies like Gab or all those other ones which which were like almost entirely Nazi right and they just become poisonous to everybody else and as as the level of as speed as as you have people in there poisoning the well eventually the well gets so poisoned that nobody wants to drink from it and so I think that the, the management or the, the boards of those sorts of companies which have this sort of reach do need to very rapidly come to a realization that they are that their, 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 their adherence to this to these sorts of theoretical um, arguments about slippy slopes and who's going to be the next guy to come along and you know and if we're banning Nazis now we'll be banning we'll be banning vegetarians next week or whatever they actually just have to take a stance and declare what their stance is and then we can choose but at the moment their stance is their stance in not taking a stance is that they are actually actively encouraging bad guys right how should they choose a line well that's up to their own particular conscience and political beliefs and whatever it is right but but they need to be open about it and a line has to be a line does have to be drawn and, and at the moment they are drawing a line they're, they're just, just not declaring it. it they're just not, not acknowledging it and the line that they're drawing is they're kind of into it right for all of that talk about free speech, if you continue to allow well-poisoning personalities on your network, if you continue to allow trolls, if you continue to, to allow you know that sort of those sorts of systemic personal attacks and, and all of that sort of thing, if you continue to allow that on your on your network, then once you've been made aware of it more than a few times, once this discussion is in the public domain, which it is, uh, once these things have been acknowledged as being a major issue for the 21st century civilization, which it has been, once you have all like this isn't a secret, once all this stuff is out and it's being discussed in the general scheme of things at a certain point we the rest of you know the rest of the users the rest of the audience have to go well actually it turns out you're not part of the solution so by definition you're kind of part of the problem here and so you know maybe the twitter board are white supremacists right do you think it'll get to the point where some state actor i know we see it a lot in europe now essentially mm-hmm. essentially views one of these companies as a national security threat and and acts to shut the company down in some way no but i don't think a national security threat but certainly certainly it happens in europe that they have certain they have certain rules around civil discourse. So for example, in Germany, it's extremely illegal to be a Nazi, right? To be and so and so actually if you so this is a very entertaining thing to do. If you go into Twitter and you set your location as German, right? If you set your account to be a German account rather than an American account and you VPN to Twitter through Germany, through a German endpoint on your VPN, you won't be able to find any of these alt right people. Because Twitter already because Twitter does filter them, right? Because legally they have to in Germany to operate in Germany. And so they have the technology, they have the systems, they have the list of the people they know who they all are because in Germany you know, they're not 
allowed to publish them. And so they don't. So if you want a Nazi-free social media, just pretend to be German. And nobody in Germany goes, oh my God, this is a, you know, a threat to our freedom of speech that we can't, you know, we can't read the adult right at all because, because they know, because they know the slippy slope, right? <laughs> the slippy slope is, isn't towards the, uh, isn't towards the censorship of liberals. The slippy slope is towards more Nazis. So they, uh, I th- and I think we will see a lot more of those sorts of things. And, and certainly we're seeing them, um, you know, the, the Chinese to a certain degree have that, but for lots of different reasons. The Russians have just said that they're going to do the same thing again for different reasons, but it is, it's entirely possible. And we already have, we already have uh, rules of propriety. Uh, we have rules of propriety on television and the press, you know, uh, in terms of what you can print and what you can say before certain, certain times of day and things like that. And so it's like we already have, we've already had that discussion. It's something that's something that we're very used to culturally. We have ratings for movies, right? There are some movies you can't go and see in the cinema unless you're over the age of 18, right? That's not censorship. That's just, you know, common, sense. common sense, right? And it's the same thing, I think, with social networks. Like, and there's nothing stopping these people from going, from starting their own blog. You know what I mean? I mean, that's the other thing. Because there's no, it's not as if they're providing a public service. If you're a Nazi, go and get yourself a blog. Blog away. As long as you Speak can as write. much as you like. Yeah. Well, that might be an issue for them. But. So, I want to I want to transition. I heard you talk about the dictator's dilemma, and you brought up China. You've brought up some more authoritarian regimes. Can you explain the the concept? Yeah. So the dictator's dilemma was a concept that specifically came up in the in the um, in the Obama era, well, in the Hillary era State Department in uh, in their foreign policy, which was this idea that as the world got more and more digital, dictators would want to you know sort of authoritarian leaders of countries would want to have the best. They want would want to have the internet because they would want to have all the stuff that the internet brings, right? And even if that, whether that stinks for their country, or even if it's just down to the fact that their teenage son wanted to play World of Warcraft, right? Whatever it is, right? They 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 want to have the modern world, and so they want to have connectivity. They want to have cell phones. They want to have 4G. They want to have all of that sort of stuff. But and this is this was the basis of the of that era's foreign policy from the US. The the idea was that once that those networks were in those countries, then they inherently weakened the authority of an authoritarian leader in that the theory was that once you gave everybody cell phones and connectivity they would be they would be able to access a lot more uh, many more things um, that were culturally and, and, and journalistically critical of the of their leader and they would be able to um, communicate with each other and organize and, and so you end up with the Arab Spring was the was the theory it's now I think seem to be a little bit more complex than that in that that really presupposed a dictator who didn't understand the internet and so they just saw it as being a, a place of gadgets and cool stuff what we now have of course are authoritarian leaders who if not themselves and certainly their their people are very digitally savvy and are able to at least attempt to have the best of both worlds for them which is to have access to the world digitally to enable online banking and all those things that we have in the modern world but at the same time have a regime which clamps down on all the things that they would seem to be somewhat suspicious community you know revolution and so on and so in china is a good example of that i think uh, a lot of the, the middle east you know a lot of the gulf states turkey russia is about to attempt it etc etc and so i'm not sure now if we were to revisit the, the dictator's dilemma it would actually be seen to be that much of a dilemma because there are plenty of people who would facilitate the dictator's dream which is they get all the good bits of the internet and they get to control their own thing as well and it's, yeah. it's often been argued that a decentralized capitalist approach will outperform a centralized socialist or communist one. yeah also, and that, i've also heard it said that that's because there's not enough data and power do you think that's changing i think it's nonsense in the first instance um i think i think uh 
China is a really good example, right? Uh, in theory, sure. In theory, the free market works way better than a centralized, centrally planned government. And, and certainly the difference in economies between, you know, Western Europe and North America and Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union over the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s is a good example of that. But it's very much more complex than that than just saying free market capitalism is better than, than authoritarian uh, regimes because you only have to look at China, which is sort of a weird combination of the two. It's, it's on the one hand, it's both exceptionally free market and capitalist, but it's also very centrally planned and authoritarian. And so what we're realizing, I think, now is that you can have free market authoritarianism, right? You don't, the free market and democracy don't necessarily, aren't necessarily interlinked in a way that we uh, we used to think was necessary, that you could have a dictator-led free market economy. And in many cases, that actually works better because you have this weird situation here in the West, which is politicians only, you know, are only in power for, say, four years or, you know, two years if they're Congress people, you know, whatever it is, like a short period of time. And so the political cycle and the planning cycle is very, very short. Whereas in China, because it's an authoritarian regime, their planning cycle is 20 years long or 50 years long so they're making their political decisions are much more long term and in terms of things like in terms of things like government spending and infrastructure and those sorts of plans and so they can make very very ambitious infrastructure plans which just we can't do here you know there's an interesting conversations to be had about which is more successful and if you and it depends on your personal values if you personally value democracy over and above everything then of course the authoritarian regimes are abhorrent to you if you if you value i know economic growth then the fastest growing economy in the world is an authoritarian dictatorship right china and so do you think it, this it, is an inflection point well it's not i don't think it's an inflection point so much as just that that a lot of our discourse in the west about about this is is incredibly old-fashioned and incredibly like based on like weird 1950s 1960s americana views of the world which is like you know capitalism good socialism bad and and certainly in american political discourse in the past 30 years all that was needed up until the past couple of years all that was needed to shut down any argument or shut down any idea would be to point at it and call it socialism right and certainly what's happened in the past year or two just looking at the opinion polls around specific ideas what's happened in the past year or two is that, that the majority of voters in the u.s are no longer of the age where socialism is a keyword which triggers like a mind trap which shuts down thinking and so we now have all of these really interesting things that are coming through Congress right now with this latest group of con- Congress, you know, this group of representatives, which are being accused by the Republicans of being socialist. And that magical word isn't having its effect anymore. And so there was some really interesting surveys that came out this week, which, which basically showed that support for what would be traditionally called socialist policies, things like single payer healthcare, for example, uh, uh, is actually very high all the way across the, all the way across the political spectrum. And that, that using the S word no longer works as a magic trick to close those ideas down. And so that might be an interesting inflection point because but in, in, in the US and in the rest of the West, it's, it's never been quite like that because the vast majority of Western democracies have always been social democratic. They've always been uh, pretty center left compared to the US. So, so I don't think it's necessarily a global inflection point in terms of authoritarianism or something like that. But what we have got here is like almost, it's almost as if the, the American political system has just sort of matured a little bit more starting to catch up with the rest of the planet. It has and also hasn't <laughs> at the well, same time. It's the ironic statement, right? 
Yeah, I mean, but but I think in many ways you can look at the current the current presidency and 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 it's that's almost like the last dying gasp of the old fashioned way, right? One of the reasons why those why those guys are really going for it so hard is because in their hearts of hearts they know this is their last chance, right? And in fact, the many it's been said, you know, a lot of the old Republican senators have said this, like they realize that with the demographic changes that are coming across the U.S., with the aging population, with the way that the voting patterns are happening, like they don't have much, you know, they don't have much longer left in the sort of political cycle for any of this, any of the stuff they want to fly to fly, because whether if not the next, whether if it's not the next election, but certainly in say 10 years time, most of the voters will be dead. And, and there isn't, for example, right, we're now recording this in like the middle of February 2019. Every single person who was born in the 20th century can now vote as of a month ago. So like all millennials can now vote. That's, that is both an obvious thing because of the date it is, but it's also a really, really powerful thing in terms of the, the, the political swing. You know, you have a completely dem- di- di- different demographic of people uh, coming through and coming into politics and, and, com- and being politically active. And, and, and as the baby boomer generation sort of passes on and the millennials come up and whatever we're calling the generation below that, right, then we're going to see a completely different change in, in ideas. And, and a lot of this sort of the Trumpist stuff is really like the, the last dying gasp. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, a startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com slash syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com slash syndicate. What happens with the U.S.? You have an inherently two-party system. You can't really get away from that, from the winner-take-all dynamic. It's it's formed almost as poorly as it could be in terms of democracies, based off of the election scientists we've had on the program who've analyzed it. It's the worst one they've ever seen. But sure. what what happens as we start to get these changing demographics and beliefs? Will the will the Republican Party fade away? Well, things can't really come to the center because then they become the same thing, and so you don't want to be the same thing because then you've died. Well, no, but they'll they, they'll they'll evolve. You know, I mean, one of the great arguments one of the like super annoying argumentative tropes that you get on Twitter all the time is uh, is highlighting the fact that that it was a Republican who ended slavery, you know, because in terms of race relations, the Republicans and the Democrats like have changed sides, as it were. So you just they'll just evolve, you know, everybody evolves, and the the Republican Party of 2050 will be completely different to the one today, and the Democratic Party of 2050 will be completely different to the one today, and it'll just they'll just evolve in their own way, um, which is why it's it's always bad. It's 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 almost like one of those sort of conversations 
conversations that they have at the beginning of a of a football game or a basketball game or something where they say you know you know the the 20 times these teams have met each other in the past you know in the past 10 years this is how it's been you know the 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 rams have won this many times and the you know and of course those are completely meaningless stat, right because it's not the same people the team isn't the same the name is the same but it's the logos aren't fighting each other it's the people and the ideas that they have and the way that they play the game and so it doesn't really the the, the name and the logo and the people will change the name and the logo will stay the same but the people and the ideas will change and they'll, they'll, they'll change everything so we just you know, have the to Republican, well the Republican Party today is completely different from the Republican Party of Reagan for example. They, they believe they're the heirs of Reagan but if you compare the policies they're completely different yeah it's interesting how we change that change the past we'll have to make sure we don't invent too much life extension technology too quickly or we may save too many politicians <laughs> and that would be a, that would be a that would be a terrible tragedy for all of us innovation well, this happens is, this is an interesting question actually that, that I think might be a might be something to I mean your point is actually quite a good one in terms of um, term limits where you have certain people and this is the same in every country I think but you have certain people who will remain in power because they have a very strong power base and a very strong team their constituency their state or whatever it is but they're blatantly not mentally all there right because they're old and they're just not they just shouldn't be in power because they're just not 100% and that's going to be a real issue as, as lifespans get longer and, and, and you know people's ability to at least appear as if they're fit and healthy gets a longer but you end up with with representative politicians who are maybe physically strong but and and politically strong in terms of their infrastructure but but cognitively losing it somewhat might be there so what's a day in the life of a what's a day sorry that was a, that was a low blow sorry trump if you want to come if you come on want to come on i'm happy to talk i'll put on a toupee as well what's a day in the life of a wired editor-in-chief like uh, well i'm not editor-in-chief i'm editor at large but uh, editor at is, large what is the difference as well well editor-in-chief gets paid a lot more money uh editor-in-chief is in charge of the magazine and an editor at large is somebody who is not allowed in the office anymore for being too uh distracting my job is to uh, I work mostly professionally as a futurist uh, so and that's what I write about for Wired and, and, and other magazines and, and newspapers and so on but professionally as a futurist my job is to help companies and individuals think about the implications of, of new technologies and how their business models will change and how society will uh, and the culture will change around those business, business models and come up with scenarios that will reflect the world in which they will be operating in three to five years time in order to give them ideas about how they need to prepare for that and that prepare in terms of products but also prepare in terms of the way that they work or who they recruit or or the sort of uh, policies that they should be having or the way that they should be thinking like that so my job is really to sort of point at point at stuff and go have you thought about that from with a sort of future facing event and that's to corp- large corporations and governments around the world what are those three things if we wanted to pack a twenty thousand dollar consulting session into here <laughs> what would what would those three to five things that you're most focused on and think that people are either overlooking or just not taking enough account of? Mm, uh, I think right now, uh, the things I'm talking about are mostly, well, everybody is very, very excited uh, or interested in machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I think in many ways, the reaction to that is more powerful than the thing itself. Uh, that's an interesting conversation to be having. Um, I think the advances in science around science and the practice of personal performance and, uh, and all of the things we know about uh, all of the things that need to go into somebody's life to have them be 
cognitively and physically suitable for this for the, for the world in a few years time and and that leads on to a specific that's part of a wider piece which is how do companies actually physically enact the act of innovation how do you how do you actually be innovative as an organization in the context of the world of say 2022 or 23 so people are really interested about so in general to sort of make that even more wide people are always interested in buzzword technologies and they were always asking for to like those buzzword technologies to be explained and to be ranked in sort of how much we care about this and then but more to the point they're interested in what does it mean for me as an individual or for us as an organization as an organization looking for individuals and then it's all about how do we as an organization undergo the practice of transformation so that so that this stuff doesn't blindside us like like the internet blindsided so many organizations 10 years ago or 20 years ago. and netflix has done a great job of this they've managed two transitions wonderfully killing blockbuster and killing a lot of other businesses what was it like working for netflix so the the cyber crimes tell me about it oh well that's i mean that was just making a tv series for them i think the that's a that's a, a good example of of a couple of things what one one is just a, a sort of a cultural shift which is that we have to we have to part of planning for the future or, or thinking about the future is that you have to be very very clear about the present it's actually probably the 99 of the job about thinking about the future is actually being very clear-eyed about what it is about today and so making a series on cyber crimes was very much about that was actually trying to get people to understand what the world is like today most people don't live in the present day this is actually quite this is a trope with most organizations that if you they i'm invited into many corporations to talk to them about the future and and actually my job is to talk to them about the present no um very, very few companies who actually live in 2019. It's actually shocking. So there's probably that, but also it was a wider, I think the wider thing with Netflix was that, um, that we forget their global reach and we forget their, their global stance on the world because of the fact that your version of that, because your Netflix experience is so tailored to you, especially once you've been using it for more than a few months or whatever it is and it gets to know your tastes and so on. When you log into Netflix, you know, and you see what it's offering you, it gives, it gives you things that it's very difficult. It's very unusual to be totally surprised by the stuff that appears in the first few pages of your Netflix queue because it's tailored to you. But actually, if you go down and you look deep into their catalog, you find that they are actually an insanely international organization. They have huge amounts of international productions and huge amounts of stuff in other languages and things like that. And so when I, my series is on there, I, the thing that really sort of struck me was the amount of people that I had around the world who'd uh, you know, I would be on the street in like Buenos Aires or somewhere like that. And people are like, oh, I saw you on TV yesterday. <laughs> and that I think is something that, again, that, that, that we forget about Netflix because we always see, we always see companies like that through our own experience and through our own viewpoint, which is always, you know, in both our cases, it's like dudes in North America. Whereas actually they have an awful lot of really cool stuff for teenage girls in Japan or whatever. Um, and so it was, it was, for me, it was seeing their reach and, and also seeing the effect of, of their very, very, very purposeful present dayism, never mind futurism, like their very, very purposeful present dayism that they have, which is something that most media companies don't have. Most media companies, are, most companies, as I say, most companies are inherently nostalgic. Especially the media companies. ones. Especially the media ones, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've, we've gotten by, uh, we've gotten by a lot of the better days. Do you think we'll, we'll see a revolution in media coming where things start to, start to pick back up and change drastically? Or are we in for more of the same? Well, I think we're in the middle of it. 
you know, we're in the middle of a huge revolution in, in, in media. It's just that I think the thing about many of the issues, this is part of the, pro- the problem of helping people. I'm in the middle of writing a book chapter on this very specific issue, which is that genuine and true, like life-changing innovation rapidly becomes incredibly banal because if it's totally life-changing, it changes your life and then your life is that thing. And then, and then after very, very rapidly, you don't remember that that's innovative, right? And so, and you forget the way you used to do something even five or 10 years ago, which in the grand scheme of things is a very short period. Um, and so things like media, the sort of $10 a month subscription services like Netflix and Hulu and things like that are actually relatively very new. Podcasts in terms of a professionalized dominant media form is extremely new. Getting your news from the web is still culturally incredibly new. All of those things. Like, And so we are in the middle of a media revolution. It's just that the media, cha- A, changes relatively slowly and B, we don't necessarily recognize the fundamental shift in the media industry because it's happened like it's just part of our lives. And so we forget, for example, like 25 years ago, local newspapers, certainly in the UK where I grew up, but also here in the US, 25 years ago, local newspapers were the contain your entire life. You know, it would be, it would have the announcement of your birth. It would have the announcement of your marriage. It would be where you found your first job. It would be where you found your first apartment. It was where you booked your holiday from. It's what you found, where you find out what was on TV that night. It's where you read about the local sports team. It's where you find out what was happening at the local cinema. It was like the local like the local newspaper was the core of everything it's where you bought your first car it's where you you know all these things and you know and it's it's uh only 20 and now it's all now all of that is dead right exactly and and that only happened that happened 20 years ago and on the in the grand scheme you know for many people listening to this 20 years ago is a life you know it's more than a lifetime ago and you don't remember any of that sort of stuff but in terms of the media industry that's hardly any time at all and a good deal of the stuff as we walk if you walk around in the media industry a good deal of the weird stuff is actually just the skeleton remains of the old way of doing and a lot of the so-called crises in the media industry are actually just people being very nostalgic about the way the old ways or the old you know how do we get back to it being like that again we'll never get back to it being like that again because it was 20 years ago and and that's why you end up with these really weird conversations where somebody like buzzfeed wins major awards like because in the eyes of an old-fashioned journalist you know who started off in newspapers like myself buzzfeed are people who do those things about how you find out which buffy character you are right and of course they're not list. exactly but if, but actually of course buffett you know buzzfeed has as well as obviously i'm spike um the the you know buzzfeed has some really 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 good investigative journalism and those, the stories that they break are really great right they're, they're the real deal as far as journalism is concerned and so but depending on your viewpoint that's either utterly uncontroversial and kind of boring to say so or it's completely bizarre or it's or it's the natural scheme of things or it's this bizarre change of you know, the culture and the industry so we're in the middle of that revolution it's just that for many of us we don't notice we don't know because it's a slow motion revolution you don't notice your hair growing so yeah, you, exactly you have a very interesting background not just at work but also personally what's up with the adventure sports a pilot a rescue diver where what what do you do for fun and where does this energy come from caffeine uh <laughs> <laughs> Caffeine, sugar. How, well, how do you I mean, get into rescue diving. Well, it's just, it seems to be a good thing at the time. I like to do stuff that, requ- that, that requires like really, really, really deep focus. And I only realized this uh, actually retrospectively for many of these things, but, but both that and, and say like being a pilot, 
uh, are not things that you can do and check your email at the same time. You know, so they require a certain they require require a combination of intellectual and physical and psychomotor and and focus and all these different skills all coming together in one sort of flow state. And so it was really it's really just been always chasing those sorts of activities, which are really just full on and require you know complete focus and concentration. And the same thing I journalistically, I was a war correspondent for quite a while, and, and you know you can't you can't be in Afghanistan in the back of a gunship flying through the mountains at 60 feet off the ground or something and be like you know wondering what's happening on Twitter uh, it, or at least it, it discourages you from that and so I, I found I find myself very uh, very much looking for those sorts of all-encompassing challenges in order to sort of create that sort of level of concentration and focus which I find to be very relaxing it feels like that's something <laughs> a lot of people are missing uh, yeah maybe uh, or maybe they're really lucky and they find that in you know making their breakfast in the morning or something like that uh, I, in many ways, I, I think it might actually just be a, a lacking of a brain chemical that I need to have, you know, those sorts of peak experiences in order to be, you know, it would be really nice to get the same sort of, uh, the same sort of experience from just emptying my inbox or completing, you know, hitting a deadline, writing deadline than I do from landing a plane in a crosswind or something like that. But then you'd be boring. Do you meditate? Well, quite, well, quite, but I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, uh, Sometimes I sometimes I do think about I you know sometimes not very often and it, and it passes very quickly but sometimes I can be walking through an office building or something like that or at a client's at a client's headquarters and be like walking through the cubicle farm and just think you know what life would be really really easy if I could if I could actually deal with that you know oh, if you I could like it. yeah no I totally hate it absolutely hundred percent but I sometimes wish that I wouldn't you know what I mean but it's a, but that's a, that's a pointless thing the genie's out of the bag what is the yeah, one technology it. or trend you're most worried about uh, in terms uh, from a personal Anything. point of view. Hmm. Interesting question. I'm not worried about AI in any way, which is the one that everybody seems to be worried about. I'm not worried about that in any way. I'm worried in many ways about blockchain, and I'm worried about it in that it's bullshit, and I see so much cognitive effort and energy and skill and people and money going into something which is almost 100% nonsense and specifically cryptocurrencies I mean the blockchain like there are some really interesting uses of the blockchain full stop but, but cryptocurrencies are just nonsense uh, for lots of different reasons and and it's you know it's that old thing you know I've seen the greatest amount of my generation wasted on blockchain uh, that's a thing I think if you really want to complain, then we would say photo sharing apps, though. Come on. <laughs> well, you know, bring back old school Flickr. I mean, seriously, back in the day, that used to be really good. Oh, no, it's still there. You get unlimited photo storage. If I you're not know. using it, anybody, you get, I think, a terabyte of photo storage. And it's I not know. owned. It's not owned by Google, Facebook, or Amazon at this point. It's owned by Yahoo, though, isn't it? Or did they yeah, but it? Yahoo's, I mean, Yahoo's dead and has no talent yeah, at this point, that's so true. it's okay. That's very true. I, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be putting any of my stuff on a Yahoo server because at some point that Yahoo server is just going to fall over because they'll, they'll forget where it is or something, or they'll have laid off the engineer and they'll have left it on for a bit, whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we just, we do need another photo sharing site, obviously. But, but I think it's... In terms of actually, in terms of economic impact, the thing that really worries me at the, at the moment is the imminent uh, collapse in digital advertising. I think we are very soon going to come to a very interesting reckoning around the fact that most digital advertising is, is based on fraud and uh, and is subprime to the extreme. And there's going to be a correction in that because obviously digital advertising is a thing. It does it does work, and targeted advertising does work. It does drive people to buy stuff, and there is there's definitely value in that. So it's not as if digital advertising in general is worthless, but the but a huge proportion, and I think a much bigger proportion than we currently accept i think a huge proportion of the digital advertising marketplace is fraudulent is it's extraordinarily fraudulent and and so an awful lot of people's companies valuations and an awful 
lot of business models are based on uh, a based on a playing field which is itself is based on huge amounts of fraud and it, if you and all it needs is is like one bit of the fraud to be pointed out for the whole thing to collapse and why do you think it's all, why do you think it's fraud i know some of it is but not why do you think a large percentage because it's a really easy way of making a lot of money you know i know i know my, like my neighbor for example uh is the sysadmin for a site which which carries advertising and they realized a few years ago that they could buy views and they realized that the value the the cost to buy page views from you know bot farms or people in the third world or whatever would, would vary and the value of click-throughs they would get from the ads that they carried would vary and so he wrote some software which just arbitraged that and whenever the cost of buying a click was lower than the cost the revenue you get from getting the click then it just triggers buying click right and a good proportion of that company's business is based on that arbitrage right no value is being created there right <laughs> There's no, that's not feeding commerce in any way, right? That's not making, doing what advertising should do. Um, and I think the same thing for an awful lot of YouTube stuff and an awful lot of, you know, Twitter stuff and things like that. And so many decisions are being made on these metrics, which just aren't real. You know, I have, whatever it is, nearly 19,000 followers on Twitter. And so many people ask me, like, you know, how many followers do you have on Twitter? And then it's, and it's used as a value. It's used as a measurement of value in the circles that, some circles that I, you know, that I work in or certain, certain, business you know propositions that i make they go off 19,000 but actually genuinely how many of those people are really alive how many, how many of them are, are Putin? yeah exactly how many of them are, how many of them are bots how many of them are people who had an account once 10 years ago and then and followed me and then never looked at the internet again etc uh, etc et how much actual interaction is there very little and the same thing for like youtube uh, page you know youtube uh, views there are i have a four-year-old and and if you look at a lot of the children's stuff on youtube and especially the super creepy weird stuff the the, the stuff that james bridler is written about in terms of like weird almost bot created videos and stuff you have all these weird russian videos that that have 50 million views and there's no way on god's earth that 50 million kids watch that watch that once or 25 million watched it twice or you know those numbers are absolutely wrong and there's hundreds of thousands of those videos there's obviously something weird happening and yet people are making massive decisions both investment decisions and cultural decisions based on these numbers which are in, which are just not reflective of reality and i think once these sorts of things start to be pointed out then the, and the, once it's pointed out that the basis of many decisions has been made on these inflated figures, whether it's buying followers, whether it's buying page views, whether it's buying video views, whether it's buying placement on the iTunes podcast charts, whatever it is, all of those things you can easily do. Once it's pointed out how fraudulent that is, a lot of this stuff falls apart. In fact, the only thing in many ways that keeps it from that keeps that from happening is how systemic it is. It's the too big to fail of the twenty of the twenty you know of this decade, right? That that you know just the whole influencer economy. Is 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 not only based on nothing, but it's based on nothing piled on top of nothing, and and that's with a real... little bit of makeup on top. Exactly, and and last time we had that sort of subprime based systemic failure of numbers, it brought down the global economy. And I'm not saying it's the same as the the same as the 2008 financial crisis, but yes, Facebook's this valuation. Selfie, this is the selfie crisis, right? But the safe, Facebook's valuation, which is huge, right, is based entirely on the value that that people that the market expresses and it has in its advertising. And if it turns out the vast majority of Facebook advertising isn't seen by humans because it's a fraudulent marketplace, then Facebook isn't worth as much as Facebook thinks it, which brings down an awful lot of people's... You know, I mean, even down. 20% you'd have a fire sale. You 
you'd have a real problem. Yeah, and, and that would have enormous knock-on effects. If you if you woke up tomorrow morning and found that Facebook had dropped twenty percent, or and all of the sort of audience-based advertising-based digital platforms had all lost twenty percent of their stock price overnight, we would like that would be a big deal. And so that that's that's actually a technology that really worries me the most because it's because it's a lie. Maybe though. So let's let's play devil's advocate. Sure. What if we found that out and cost per clicks dropped 30, 40 yeah. percent? Would startups and companies just buy more ads and increase their ROI? Google and Facebook get screwed, but ultimately make the same amount of money. And then everyone but the affiliate marketers win. Is that a plausible scenario? Uh, maybe, but I think at the same time, you would have a cultural shift and the cultural shift would be towards uh, towards commercial success through quality rather than commercial success through branding or hype or branding branding through through genuine quality rather than branding through hype i mean this was the the idea that's been around for a very long time actually in the digital era which is that it's very very difficult it's increasingly difficult online to make to make something that's rubbish because there's so much reviewing possible i mean this is again this is a massive social change that we we forget is a social change 25 years ago it was really really difficult to review something it's really difficult to find a review or something if you wanted to be a restaurant critic, for example, you would have to be a journalist for 20 or 30 years and eventually make your way to being a hallowed position in the newspaper where you were then lucky enough to be made the restaurant reviewer because the previous one had died, right? Because it's the job everybody wants, right? And then you become the restaurant reviewer and you're the one restaurant reviewer in your town because your town has this one local paper and you review one restaurant a week. And that's, and that's like restaurant reviews. Whereas now, 25 years later, basically nothing you can do on this planet that hasn't got a specialist review site somewhere, right? There's nothing you can buy where you can't look up a thousand reviews of that thing there's no restaurant there's no there's no anything that isn't massively well reviewed everywhere and and that's a, that's from a human society point of view that's completely new and we we totally forget that this is the case right and so the the idea was that when all of that sort of reviewing happened the effect would be that you could no longer make terrible products because you could or you could no longer have your product be have the branding of your product do the work for it you can you can no longer bullshit about it because you only have to sell a couple of them and those people those those two will be reviewed instantly by those customers who will instantly say yeah the bo- the box looks really nice and they make lots of promises but it doesn't actually work and they need that business and so the idea will be that this is would drive quality and i think maybe we'll start to see a lot more of that sort of thing or a lot more of emphasis on that sort of thing that you become successful not by buying social media influence but by making the very best thing and having genuine reviews say that this is the very best thing so i'm looking i think it's more going to be a, a, an issue of like trying to get onto wire cutter because you make the very best whatever it is you make rather than trying to be the number one thing because you spent a lot of money on Twitter followers and influencers and Instagram bots. And-, and to play devil's advocate coming from the Amazon side, you can also just buy the reviews. So that's the that's the flip right. side of the coin. Right. And so that's that of course is uh, that of course speaks to the naivety of of, of uh, those of us who are having these who are making these sorts of points twenty years something ago. Like 90, something like ninety percent of the ad clicks on Facebook are are uh, older folks, right? Because no one else, everyone else knows not to click a freaking ad, right? Right, and that's that actually ties in with a very interesting thing that came out a few weeks ago from Pew. We're talking about misinformation and who is who is it who spreads the most information on social networks, and it's it's absolutely one hundred percent positively correlated with age. So you know the most fake. News news is you know fake news and misinformation and, and stuff like that is spread mostly by the elderly online so when you hear people complaining about young people and their social media you know ruining political discourse it's actually not the case it's the other way around it's because they're gullible
and used to trusting. They haven't gotten that right, and, and it's uh, or they're just really into like you know you know the, the forwarded emails from your racist uncle, right? It's the same. It's a similar sort of deal. Just made made much easier because of Facebook. Yes, it is. Now we can tag everyone. This has been uh, this has been a fun one. We, we're ending on a negative note, so let's throw something positive <laughs> to make it fun. All right. Ben, yeah. what is one thing you would want to leave people with? A quote, a call to action, something exciting, something to do. What would it be and why? Inspirational and happy, right? Um, Just not downright dreary and go kill not, myself sad. Not upset, yeah. God. Uh, I think about going and get myself an extra couple of coffees. Um, I think that we one of the things we've spoken about a few times has been that a lot of this change is, is we we don't remember we don't think about how much change has happened because we don't remember where we started. And so a lot of the major changes that we have online are, are banal because they just sit in the background and we don't think of them as being new. And I think one of the things that really people don't recognize as being incredibly new and incredibly important is the fact that we now all have access online to the very best practitioners in the world of whatever it is you're in or want to be in. And this actually this actually was a life-changing realization for me, which was a few years ago. There was there's a TEDx talk. It's on the TED site. There's a TEDx talk with this this guy and he he does like a four-minute TED talk about how to dry your hands in a public bathroom. The best, the most like efficient and effective and least wasteful way of drying your hands in the public bathroom. Right? Just go onto the TED, TED.com and look up the video. It's like four minutes and it will change your life, right? Because it turns out you've been doing it wrong. And there's another video that it re- always recommends, which is how to tie your shoes. It turns out the vast majority of people on the planet tie their shoes wrongly, right? And you watch these videos and you realize, holy shit, literally everything I do in my life, chances are I learned it from somebody who doesn't really know, didn't really know how to do it themselves because they learned it from somebody, you know, they learned it from their local, they learned it from their parents or their local teachers and like that. And now we have access to all of these experts who are the very best in the world. And so literally everything in your life, you can go like, how do I how do I brush my teeth properly, right? How do I make a cup of tea in the best possible way of making a cup of tea? How do I, whatever the task is, right? How do I take care of my bike, which you know, sat behind me, whatever it is. And you can go online and you can find the world's greatest person who knows about that thing. And they'll undoubtedly have made a video or written a blog post or something about that thing. And you can learn the best, the world's best technique in that thing. And it's true for practically everything. And so we have this really strange situation now that we've kind of not realized it, that you could, even on five minutes a day, totally transform your life simply by just going, by noticing a thing that you do every day and going, I wonder if I'm doing that wrong. And you probably are. And there's probably a video online that will show you how to do it right. And then you learn that thing and it will transform your life. And if you do that 20 times, it will radically change everything in your life because you will be drying your hands better and you'll be tying your shoes properly and you'll be making coffee in the correct way and you'll be whatever it is. And so I think for all of the censorship and, you know, bullshit around blockchain and all that sort of stuff, we tend to forget that the internet brings us these enormous blessings and, and this enormous ability to be really, really good at stuff. And if you really want to feel jolly and, and like hopeful about the future, just, you know, remember the fact that there's a there's a video on TED that in four minutes will completely transform your life about how you dry your hands in the public bathroom and you'll watch that and then two or three times a day from then on you will unveil your secret superpower to yourself and you will think actually yeah there's there's hope yet the most mundane things can be transformational it's like modern day zen buddhism you just do it just right and perfectly and well, it changes your life uh, yes exactly that exactly that ben this has been this has been a fun one where's the best place for people to find you and learn more uh i'm 
on uh, Twitter uh, at Ben Hamsley is probably the best place. Uh, my tweets sort of auto-delete after about 72 hours. So if you don't find anything entertaining, come back in a few days. And whatever you do, bring your five Russian troll friends so that we can build up those. We can That's build right. up those follower accounts, right? He, people I, need, I, need, I need to, yeah, I need to get about 20,000. Apparently I get like invited to the Kardashians if that happens. Oh yeah. If anyone wants to buy some for him, then uh, you've, you've got the address. Thanks. Thanks Thank for coming today, Ben. This has been a fun one. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.